John 1, 35 through 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Have you ever felt like you're meant for more? Like the life you're living right now, um, it may be fine, even though we probably all have things in our lives we know should change. But even if your life is going really great, have you ever felt like, like there's something more that you were meant for? And not only are you not living it right now, you're not even sure what it really is. Let me give you an example of that. It's kind of an extreme example, but it makes the point. Many of you know that I was an alcoholic and a drug addict for several years. I was able to hold my life together for a pretty long time, but eventually things started falling apart, and eventually they got so bad that I was faced with some really tough decisions. I was um, um, professionally blacklisted. I was uh, being evicted from my home. I was alienated from my friends and my family. Uh, I was a wreck physically, and I remember one day um, I was sitting in my garage um, getting high, and I was thinking about all of this, and, and I had this realization that there were really two roads in front of me, and one road was the road I was already on. I had a pretty good idea where that was going, but this other road was a road that led to, well, I didn't even know how to describe it. 
I had this idea that there was a different kind of life that was out there somewhere, um, real life, true life, a good life. But since I had never experienced it, I had no way of conceiving of that except in terms of what I would have to give up in order to find it. That meant no drugs, which meant no comfort, no familiarity, and definitely no control. Um, it, was, it meant the loss of everything I knew. Um, I believed that there was something more out there for me somewhere, and I believed that it was available to me, but I knew that I would have to give up um, everything that I currently knew in order to find that life. And I'll tell you, I was terrified. And like I say, that's kind of an extreme example. But um, your life may not be as messed up as mine was, but even if your life is going really well right now, have you ever felt like you're meant for more? Or maybe I could say it like this, would you rather have what you think you want or would you rather have what you really want only you don't know what that is yet? It's kind of like there's two doors, right? Door number one has a window on it, and you can see exactly what you're going to get if you walk through. But door number two, there is no window. There's just a sign on the door that says, the life you were meant for. What would it take to get you to walk through that door? Um, We are beginning today the season of Epiphany. Epiphany follows Christmas, and it's the season of the year that Christians have historically used to... um, ponder the appearance, the epiphany of Jesus and his significance for the world. So today we're beginning a a new series on a series of very famous statements that Jesus made in the Gospel of John called the I Am Statements. Jesus said things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Very famous statements that tell us about the significance of Jesus for the world. And before we get into those statements, this morning we're really we're, we're doing an introduction. And really this introduction is an invitation. Have you ever felt like you're meant for more? This passage is all about what it would mean to walk through the door. And really this invitation is to three things. It's an invitation to know ourselves better. It's an invitation to know Jesus better. And it's an invitation to the community that results. Okay? This passage is an invitation to know ourselves better, to know Jesus better, and to be a part of the community that results from that. So let's take a look this morning by seeing first this invitation to know yourself better. Um, This passage is all about the first people to follow Jesus. So in verse 38, Jesus sees them following him and he turns around to talk to them. Now, this is important because up until this point in the Gospel of John, A lot has been said about Jesus, but this is the first time in the gospel that Jesus himself speaks. And first words are always important. They always tell you a lot about that person and what they're doing. So what are the very first words that Jesus says in the gospel of John? It's a question. Jesus asks them, what are you seeking? Now, Whenever Jesus asks a question, and he asks hundreds of questions, if you read through the Gospels with an eye for this, you will be amazed at how many times Jesus asks questions. When, whenever Jesus asks a question, a lot of times Jesus doesn't ask the question because he needs the information, it's because we need the information. He's not asking for himself, he's asking for us. 
Jesus' questions are an invitation to us to be more honest about ourselves, with ourselves, and with Jesus. So he asks this question, what are you seeking? If you stop and reflect on that for more than just a few moments, you realize that is a huge question. It's a question for all of us. What are you seeking? And the fact that Jesus even asks the question means that that we're not always sure that we really know the answer to that question in the first place. It's kind of like in the Harry Potter books, the first book. If you remember the story, Harry Potter's parents were killed when he was a little baby. And um, he grows up with this huge hole in his life. And one day he finds a magic mirror. It's called the Mirror of Erised. Um, Erised is desire, spelled backwards in case you didn't realize that. But he finds this magic mirror and... um, And he looks in the mirror, but instead of seeing himself all alone, he sees his parents with their arms around him, um, looking at him lovingly. And he gets so excited that he runs and he finds his best mate, Ron, and he says, Ron, you have to come see this. But when Ron looks in the mirror, he doesn't see his parents. He sees himself as a sports hero and a school leader. The reason is because this is a mirror that shows you the deepest desires of your heart. And it's not the same for everybody. What are you seeking? If you think about it, here's the question. What would you see if you looked in the mirror? And even more than that, would you see what you think you would see? And would you be willing to look? Are you willing to look in that mirror? Jesus is asking us to look in the mirror, to reflect on the question, are you really looking for what you think you're looking for? Do you really desire what you think you're desiring? What are you seeking? Jesus' question is an invitation to ourselves to know ourselves better, but it's even more than that because one of the things we see here is that this is an invitation to know Jesus better, that the only way we can know ourselves better is by having an encounter with Jesus. He's the one that helps us to know ourselves better. So look at how this plays out. In verse 41, Andrew, um, he gets his brother Simon and he brings him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus meets Simon, he says, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, Cephas and Peter, those are both words or names that, I mean, basically means rocky. Jesus gives Peter a new name. And in the Bible, to, to give someone a name is to define that person. In other words, Jesus sees the reality of who Peter really is, and then he gives him a new name on the basis of that reality. The only way to understand yourself better is to have this encounter with Jesus, to listen to what Jesus says to you about yourself. Or look, you know, um, Jesus does something very similar with Nathaniel just a little bit after that. When Jesus sees Nathanael walking by, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael's kind of a little freaked out. He says, How do you know me? And Jesus says, Oh, I saw you under the fig tree. And when when Nathanael hears that, he says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now here's the question. What in the world was going on underneath that fig tree? (laughs) Nobody knows. And that's kind of the point. Whatever was going on underneath the fig tree, whatever Nathaniel was doing there, it was something that was so precious, so intimate, so personal, and so special that for Jesus to see that means that Jesus knows the depths about who Nathaniel really is and is able to tell Nathaniel more about those things. 
Friends, here's the point. We're going to talk about this conversation conversation with Nathaniel more in just a little bit. But for right now, here's the point. Jesus knows you infinitely better than you know yourself. And, and the only way you will ever really understand yourself, the way you, you learn more about yourself, more about the deepest desires of your heart, more about the deepest inner workings of your heart, is through an encounter with Jesus. And that leads to our next point. We've seen an invitation to know ourselves better. But next we see this is an invitation to know Jesus better. Jesus understands us better than we understand ourselves. But in order to understand ourselves, we have to meet Jesus. We have to encounter Jesus. But you have to make sure that you're encountering the real Jesus. So for instance, when Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter, he says, we found the Messiah. That means they, they thought they knew who Jesus was. Now that word Messiah is a word that means anointed one. Um, back then, uh, Jewish people believed that one day God was going to come and renew the world, that one day God would come and heal the world of sin and evil and sickness and death. And so over and over again in the Bible, um, you keep seeing that God's vision is not that one day he's going to destroy this world and carry us away to some disembodied heaven. No, God's vision is that one day he's going to renew this world by uniting it with heaven. It's the renewal of all things, not the destruction of the world. It's the renewal of the world. So when Jewish people talked about this Messiah, they were referring to this figure in the Bible. It talks about this figure over and over again in the Bible as the agent, the vessel of God's renewal in this world. And there were different titles for this. So for instance, in verse 49, when Nathanael calls Jesus son of God and the king of Israel, those were different ways of referring to this same figure, this Messiah, this king who was going to come and renew the world. But here's the thing. At this point in Israel's history, they had reduced this vision of God's cosmic renewal. They had shrunk it down to a political vision. Because at this time in their history, Israel was under Roman occupation they were economically and politically oppressed. So when they talked about the Messiah, they were thinking in terms of this great political and military leader. They were thinking of someone who was going to come and kick out the Romans and restore the nation of Israel to world power. Really, it was a nationalistic vision. They were thinking of Jesus in political terms. And if you think about it, you realize that in our late modern Western world, we often do the same thing. We're, we, uh, we are trained, indoctrinated to think of the solution to this world's biggest problems in terms of a political solution. So that if Jesus even enters the conversation, most often people will bring Jesus in as a poster child for whatever their political agenda happens to be. Many people think of Jesus only in terms of a political leader, but Jesus is not just a political leader. That's not who he really is. By the way, um, this is one of the reasons that Nathaniel was so skeptical about Jesus. You remember he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was scoffing at Jesus. Nazareth was a tiny, backwater little hick town, and anybody who came from Nazareth in those days would have been a social nobody. And Nathaniel was looking for this great political leader, but Jesus didn't fit his expectations, so he was scoffing at Jesus because he was thinking of Jesus in political terms. But Jesus comes and he says, I am not just a political leader. 
By the way, you notice when Nathanael throws these titles on Jesus, Son of God, King of Israel, you notice that Jesus does not refuse the titles. He reshapes them. Nathanael calls him these titles, but notice what Jesus says. He says, oh, you believe in me because I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than these. What he's really saying is, Nathanael, I'm glad you believe in me. But your vision of me is way too small. Yes, I'm a king, but I am not the kind of king that you think I am. By the way, if you read through the Gospels, you see many other places where people would throw these titles at Jesus. They they would call him Messiah, Son of God, Son of David, King of Israel. All of these were Messianic titles. And you notice over and over again, Jesus never says, don't call me that. He doesn't refuse the titles. He reshapes them. He reshapes people's understanding of the titles by reshaping people's understanding of him. And that's exactly what he does here in this passage. When he tells Nathaniel, you will see greater things than these, what does he mean? Well, in verse 51, he tells us, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what in the world is he talking about? He's referring back to an episode from the book of Genesis about Jacob. Jacob was one of the fathers of the nation of Israel. And this episode comes from Genesis 28, um, in which Jacob was on the run for his life because he had cheated his brother Esau. Now, at this point in Jacob's life, two things were going on. On the one hand, he had been promised by God that God was going to use him as a part of his, God's renewing work in the world. We were just talking about that a moment ago. God's vision is to renew the whole world. God had promised Jacob that he was going to use Jacob to be a part of that. But on the other hand, this was a low point in Jacob's life. He was on the run for his life. He was a fugitive. He was in the middle of nowhere. It says he had nothing except for a rock to lay his head on. But what happens is he falls asleep. He has a dream, and and in his dream, he sees the heavens opened and a ladder coming from heaven to earth. Really, the ladder was more like a giant staircase or a ramp. And he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder. Now, angels are God's messengers. They're servants of God. So these angels are flooding into the world to do God's business, to achieve God's purposes, and then go back up into heaven. Essentially, what Jacob saw was a bridge between heaven and earth, and and all of God's energy, God's power, God's action was being poured out into the world. In other words, Jacob saw God's renewal of the world coming into the world through this bridge, through this ladder. Do you realize now what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, I am the bridge between heaven and earth. I am the ladder. God is renewing the world through me. That's what he's saying. Now, here's what all of this means. Let's tie it all together. Um, Jesus is telling us, first of all, that he's not just a political leader. And that's not to say that Jesus doesn't care about things like poverty or war or injustice or racism or oppression or any of those things. He's saying that the ultimate healing of those things does not come by exercising raw political power. Jesus is not just a political leader. But notice also, neither is he saying that he's simply a religious teacher. And here's what I mean by that. In our secular Western world, um, We have the scientific worldview, and the scientific worldview divides the world into two. On the one hand, we have the world of what we call public facts. 
Those are things that um, a scientific worldview says that the only things that can be known as facts are things that can be known scientifically, public facts. But then on the other hand, we have what's called the world of private values. Private values, that's things like morality or religion or spirituality. Our culture would say, hey, if you want to believe in those things, great. If, if those things help you have a better life, that's wonderful. But don't you dare presume to say that those things constitute public fact. Don't you dare presume to say that those things are true for everyone. You see, the world of, of public facts and private values. Now, even if you're a Christian, listen, this is the cultural waters we all swim in. This is the narrative that shapes the way all of us see the world. So if we think that the gospel is just um, this private, internal, spiritual experience of God and that the purpose of the church is to teach us about these spiritual principles that are designed to help us be happy, well-adjusted people, if we think that, then we have simply been taken captive by our culture's division of the world into public facts and private values. And by the way, you can see that in the way we talk about spirituality in our culture. We say things like, whatever works for you. Who's to say what's really true? That, you see, we say the world of spirituality really is the world of private values. That's the world of options, of freedom of choice. And especially, it's the world of, of expressing yourself as an individual. So... Um, you know, spirituality in our culture, is, it really is whatever works for you. Designer spirituality, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's a mashup, but it's not the world of public facts. And you see that in the way we talk about spirituality in this culture. But Jesus amazingly here is saying, I am not just another religious teacher. He's saying, I did not come just to impart these little nuggets of spiritual wisdom for you to take and apply to your life so you can have a private experience of God. I am not just a political leader. I am not just a religious teacher. Okay, well then what is Jesus? Do you know what Jesus is really telling us here? When he says the angels of God are going to ascend and descend on me? Jesus is saying, I am the meaning of history. He's saying the Bible is not simply a collection of moral fables or spiritual principles that you take and apply to your life to have this private experience of God. The Bible is, is the public story of universal history. It's the public story of God's universal mission to renew the world as the place he created it to be. And he's fulfilling that mission through me. That's what Jesus is saying. Friends, the gospel... Listen, it's not a grab bag of spiritual goodies designed to help you have this happy, bubbly, sparkly, ebullient life. The gospel is a public announcement about God's universal mission to renew the world through Jesus. That's what it is. Now, either that's true or it's not, but either way, that is not something that is merely relegated to the world of private values. And listen, don't just take my word for it. Um, Leslie Newbigin was a British missionary in India for 40 years, and he had a very close friend named um, Chaturvedi Badranath. Chaturvedi Badranath was an Indian scholar of world religion and a devoted Hindu. And, and Leslie Newbigin tells the story about how once they were talking about the Bible, and here's what his friend said to him, this, this world scholar of religion and committed Hindu said to him about the Bible. He said, I don't understand why missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. 
And by that, he meant a book of abstract principles that we apply to our lives. He says, it is not a book of religion. We have plenty of books of religion here in India. We don't need any more. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole creation, and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. He says there is nothing in the whole religious literature of all the world to put alongside it. That is an amazing statement from someone who knows what he's talking about. And understand, he didn't believe Christianity was true. He thought Christianity was absurd. But at least he understood what it's claiming. Friends, the only way you're going to understand yourself better is if you have an encounter with the real Jesus. In order to know yourself better, you have to know Jesus better. You have to have an encounter with the real Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He's, he's the bridge between heaven and earth. He's the meaning of history. He's the fulfillment of history. In fact, if all of this is true, Jesus isn't just the meaning of history. He's the center of history. He's the crux of history, literally. Because that word crux is the old Latin word that means the cross. In other words, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just you know, one event among many that are part of a larger historical story. No, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is what the whole story is about. It's kind of like if you had a book that was missing a chapter and the chapter happened to be the most crucial chapter in the book that had the whole turning point of the story in it. You could read that book and you would kind of understand it. It would maybe make sense, but you'd know that something was missing. But if somebody gave you the missing chapter... You'd read this chapter and you'd say, ah, oh, now I understand what the whole story is about. Friends, if Jesus is the center of history, and he is, then he's the only one who can tell you who you really are and what you're really meant for. If you really want to understand yourself, if you really want to understand the world and your life and your place in this world, the only way that happens is through an encounter with Jesus, and you have to meet the real Jesus in order to do it. And that leads to our last point. We've seen this invitation to know ourselves better, an invitation to know Jesus better, but lastly, this passage is an invitation to the community that results if Jesus is the center of history, then to be invited into relationship with Jesus is to be invited into the community of people who are following Jesus. So what does that community look like? Well, to use the language of this passage, um, it's a come and see community. Come and see community. What does that mean? Well, first, a come and see community, is, it shows us how you get to know Jesus. So if you look back at this passage, when these first disciples are following Jesus, Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you staying, Jesus? I think it's just a way of saying, hey, we want to learn more. Can we talk? And Jesus says, come and see. Do you know what that is? It's an invitation to get to know him better. It's an invitation to spend time with him, to learn of him by actually interacting with him. And I love the way this presents Jesus to us because you realize you know, Jesus doesn't take the hardline religious approach which says, just turn off your mind, don't ask any questions. Neither does he take the relativistic approach which says, hey, who's to say what's true anyway, whatever works for you? No, Jesus doesn't do either of those things. He invites them into a deeper conversation. 
Really, he invites them to come and think, to use their mind. It's an invitation to investigate, to think, to use their mind. And if you're exploring Christianity, Jesus invites you to do the same thing too, to use your mind. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that would be great if we could actually spend time with Jesus like these disciples did, but we can't do that anymore, which is true. But that's why over and over again, when you read the Gospel of John, it keeps presenting itself as eyewitness uh, testimony. If you read it, you, you see this language all over the place, giving testimony, bearing witness. The Gospel of John is eyewitness testimony to who Jesus really is. If you want to know him, then one of the best ways to do that is to spend time encountering him in the whole Bible, but especially in the Gospel accounts of his life. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that this morning, and we'll probably get back to it at some point later in this series. But for now, if you have questions about that, or if you're skeptical that you can really encounter the real Jesus, really access Jesus through the gospel accounts of his life, come talk to me. I would love to talk with you more about that. But one of the big ways you come and see about Jesus is not just by using your mind, but also by reading his word. Now, lastly, it happens by a community of friends. You come and see Jesus by using your mind, by reading his word, but also it means a community of friends. You notice in this passage, Andrew goes and finds Peter, and he helps him to get to know Jesus better. Or Philip goes and finds Nathaniel, and he helps him to get to know Jesus better. If you really want to get to know Jesus, one of the ways that happens is by getting access to people who know Jesus better than you do and, and getting them to help you understand who Jesus really is. That's one of the main reasons we have community groups at this church. They're filled with people who would love to welcome you in your questions about how Jesus is, or who Jesus is. So first, a come and see community is a community that shows us how you get to know Jesus. But secondly, a come and see community is a community that shows us how we make Jesus known. As I just mentioned, if you look at this passage, um, you'll notice that this come and see language, Jesus isn't the only one doing it. It, it. it happens all throughout the Gospel of John. So for instance, in verse 46, when Nathaniel is expressing all this skepticism about Jesus, what, what does Philip say? Come and see. You've got somebody who already knows Jesus, and then he's inviting someone else to come and, and meet Jesus too. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, this sounds like evangelism. And in our culture, that's a no-no, which is kind of true. But think about this. Everybody's an evangelist for something in our culture. For instance, why do people write books? You've got this big idea that you think it's really important that other people really need to know about this thing. So not only do you write the book, you market it, you sell it, you post it on Instagram and Facebook, you, you let the whole world know about it as much as you can. You invite people to come and see about this big idea you have because you think it's so important that people have to know about this idea that you have. Now, if they don't want to read the book or talk to you about it, that's fine. But you do invite them to come and see about it. It. Friends, if Jesus is the center of history, nothing is more important than that. And so being a part of a community that follows him will mean inviting other people to come and meet him too. Yes, the church is supposed to be all about deeds of justice and mercy. And yes, the church is supposed to be all about having compassion for the poor and the marginalized in the world. If we're not doing that, then we're not being the church. 
But one of the primary functions of the church is also to bear public witness to the public story, the public announcement of the gospel, which is God's universal mission to renew the world through Jesus Christ. And bearing witness to that means proclaiming that in public. So what does that look like? To be a come and see community that invites other people to come and know Jesus. Well, let me mention just four things briefly. First, it means we're a patient community. You'll notice the people in this passage, they don't get to know Jesus overnight. It's a process. Being a patient community means being patient with people's questions, not getting annoyed when they're asking questions that you think everybody should know the answer to that. Patient community. Secondly, a come and see community is a welcoming community. If the gospel really is universal history, that means it's for everyone. It's for all people, all cultures, all classes. It's for the whole world. That's why, for instance, the early church was the most multi-ethnic, multi-class community the world had ever seen. It was a welcoming community. Thirdly, a come and see community will be a humble community. If you're talking to people about Jesus, you're going to get asked hard questions. And I know that freaks some of us out. Ah, what do I say? I don't know the answer. Well, you know what? Philip got asked a hard question in this passage. Nathaniel said, hey, how can you say that the Messiah comes from Nazareth? I thought scripture says he comes from Bethlehem. Hard question. Philip could have said, um, yeah. And Nathaniel would have said, well, then how can you say he comes from Bethlehem? What does Philip say? Come and see. A humble community is a community that's able to say, I don't know the answer to that. Let's go find out together. I have some friends who know Jesus better. Let's go talk to them. A come and see community, friends, is going to be a patient community, a welcoming community, a humble community. But lastly, it's going to be a bold community. Because if Jesus really is the center of history, if, if the gospel really is public truth for all people in all times and places, universal history about God's mission to renew the world through Jesus, that means that, that proclaiming Jesus is not going to be something that we relegate to a corner of private values. It's public truth. And that means that we're going to proclaim that as public truth. Our culture is constantly going to pressure us to retreat with the gospel back into the corner of private values and say, oh, no, no, it's just this private religious experience. No. The early church, listen, um, ancient Rome had provisions for religions to exist and, and be um, part of that pluralistic culture. They, Christianity could have been a protected religion if they had simply said, hey, we're fine just saying that we've got this private religious experience and we're content to be protected like all the other religions that say the same thing. But they wouldn't do that. They didn't do that. They said, no, we can't do that. This is public truth. It's universal history, and it must be proclaimed as such. To proclaim the gospel as public truth is an act of cultural dissidence. It's cultural disobedience. That means, yes, you need to be a bold community, but in order to do that really well, you can see how important it will be that we're also a patient community, a welcoming community, a humble community. Friends, how are we going to do all this? How are we going to be this patient, welcoming, humble, bold community. The only way really is to see that Jesus has already done all of these things for us on the cross. That, that when you see the public truth of the cross of Jesus Christ showing you a Savior who patiently pursued you across eternity, a Savior who welcomed you on the cross with arms not just open wide but nailed wide, 
A Savior who, the God of the universe, who humbled himself in order to make you his own and who confronted, boldly confronted, all the powers of evil, sin, and death on the cross. When we see Jesus doing that for us on the cross, that makes us a community that's therefore able to turn around and be a a patient community, a, a welcoming community, a humble community, and a bold community. Do you ever feel like your life is meant for more? It's because you are. You're meant to know Jesus, to worship him, to love him, to serve him, and to invite other people to come and know him too. That's what we're meant for. Let's pray.